Here's something I'd like you to consider. Let me just read this to you, and then we'll meet the author. The modern research university was designed to produce new knowledge and to pass that knowledge on to students. North American universities over the last 100 years have been exceptionally good at that task. But this is not all that universities can do or should do. The COVID-19 pandemic has made it even easier to reduce teaching to knowledge dissemination and to obscure other equally important forms of education that help students be better citizens, thinkers, writers, and collaborators. Those other forms of education are the cornerstone of human flourishing and democratic participation. This is a problem. The author is Dr. Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo School of Communication Arts. The piece is the problem with online learning. It doesn't teach people to think. Dr. Rob Danish, join us now from Ontario. Good morning, Rob. Thanks for being with us. It's an excellent piece. We appreciate the opportunity to discuss it with you. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's a pleasure, and uh, uh, pardon the long preamble and the ripping off of your material <laughs> okay. here, Rob, yeah. but I couldn't have said it better myself, and it really does set it Thank up you. because the pandemic has taught us a lot of lessons, and you in the education industry have learned uh, as about as many lessons about what you do uh, as any other profession uh, in, yeah. in the world. So some of the lessons that we've learned uh, are about how education on a mass scale, Rob, has has yeah. been forced to change, has been forced to redirect its energies and its yeah. task to its mission, if you will, into a, 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 a digital environment that is quite restrictive. Is that a safe way yeah. of summarizing it? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's right. Um, professors like myself, everyone at my institution had to put this enormous amount of energy into translating our courses from what's normally this in-person experience to some sort of online platform. Different universities use different ones, but we spent all this energy and I think we realized that we can do it in some ways. Like yeah. there are things that we're actually pretty good at when we move them to this remote setting or this online or digital um, modes of, of learning. So that has been a kind of revelation, but along the way, I think we also forget some other things or there have been parts of education that haven't been as easily translated into digital environments. So some things we've done well and some things we've kind of just pushed to the side because the things we do well, we've learned that we can do in an online setting. Well, and that's that's an important point to make too, Rob, because we have, I mean, you, you talk about the technological miracle, literally, yeah. that is the, yeah. uh, the distance learning experiment that's now real in Canada and elsewhere. And so, and we've, and Canadians have long since been experts in distance communication. So we're good at that. And we actually yeah. adapted rather quickly. I mean, it, you had to have uh, both uh, the, the uh, transmission stuff from, from the, the, the learning, uh, the teaching side of the equipment. And then you had to have all of those people on the learning side with the appropriate gear and, and all the rest yep. of it. That took a little bit, but really did happen amazingly quickly. And I guess Very we kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you're saying because I'm asking a long question. Uh, are yeah. we sort of content to pat ourselves on the back because of this miraculous yeah. pivot to on learn, online learning uh, and, and sort of stop short of what we could take this if we really yeah. wanted to run it up the flagpole? 
Well, that's what I'm worried about. And that's sort of why I wrote the piece. I'm worried at my own institution that we're kind of content now with what we were able to accomplish in the last 12 to 15 months or so. And we're content to just sort of stop there and then deliver a lot of this material going forward in a remote online setting because right. there are some benefits to that. And I think that's a mistake. I, I don't think we can just um, assume that the kind of education we can deliver remotely is exactly the same as the kind we deliver in person. Uh, and so there's nothing else to worry about now that we can, we've mastered the technology. Well, you know, that's a really important point to make uh, because, of course, the, the university experience uh, is a lot more than just the, uh, the hopefully scroll you receive at the end of the yeah. exercise. And a lot exactly. of it has to do with just being there. And I think, Rob, the thing that's really grating a lot of Canadians in all corners of the country is that post-secondary institutions in some areas have actually decided to raise their fees for this coming yeah. academic year. And folks are going seriously you're not you're yeah. not giving any kind of in-person experience whatsoever and you insist yeah. on raising fees that's silly that's it's it's ludicrous and and uh, uh, the reaction has not been in uh, at all positive uh, is there are there any schools in your region in southern ontario rob that fall into that category in terms of raising tuition this fall well in ontario we're not allowed to raise tuition yet but i i sympathize with the student's perspective because I, I think what the students are saying is that, look, there's something really, really valuable about being on campus. And you're to the university administrations, you're dismissing that really valuable thing. No and you're assuming the only value lies in that knowledge dissemination function when that's not the only valuable part of the university education. Um, so it does feel wrong to me for universities to jack up their prices while the, they've taken something away from the mm -hmm. university experience. That's right. So I, yeah, the students have something to complain about there, as far as I can tell. I think so. Can we go to the piece here? Because you, you, you yeah. talk a little bit about some, you, you make an interesting uh, point very early on in, 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 the, in the piece, because I, I want to get to why you think this doesn't help kids think. But yeah. you talk yeah. about the Greeks and, and the fact that they, in, it, even in the early days, uh, divided education into two categories. Talk to us about yeah. that. Yeah, so the, there's a, two kinds of knowledge for the ancient Greeks, at least. There's kind of abstract theoretical knowledge, which gives us an explanation, say, of how things work. Okay. Um, and then there's practical knowledge about how to do stuff. So even if you go to music school, you can take an abstract music theory course, but you can also take a course in how to perform, say, play on the piano. Some mm -hmm. people can really, really play. Like, they're excellent piano players. Some people have, you know, theoretical knowledge of perfect pitch and what uh, notes are, et cetera. The Greeks thought you needed an education in both. So, like, they're equally important. Right. Um, the learning the know-how, though, is, is tougher. It requires practice. It requires often practice with someone who's a master or really good at that thing that you're trying to learn how to, how to do. And I think that one problem with shifting online is that the, no, those know-how skills, and they're not just playing the piano. It's also learning how to write a beautiful sentence, learning how to give a compelling presentation, learning how to weigh evidence, learning how to critically assess a piece of evidence. Mm. Those sorts of know-how skills are transformative for students and are part of the in-person experience. And I see them less in online courses. I see more of the teaching of abstract theory in online courses and less of the practical know-how. 
Why do you think that is? Is it easier to teach abstract than it is to teach the practical in an in a uh, in an online uh, impersonal environment? I think that's right. So I think um, one of the issues is that if you imagine in your head like what a Hollywood scene at a university looks like, it's probably a professor standing in front of the room delivering a lecture to like a couple hundred students. And when it's like that, those are often about theoretical abstract knowledge. So the professor is delivering some body of knowledge to the students. But I don't teach classes like that. Most of the classes I took as a student weren't like that. Lots Mm -hmm. of the classes we have on my campus are not like that. Uh, So I'm not denigrating that form of education, but there are other kinds where students and and teachers are are engaged in a kind of problem-solving exercise or thinking through a problem together. Um, So what happens online is that you can make a 10-minute video of yourself giving a lecture. It's not that hard. We have the technology. We all have cameras. So you can simulate what happens in the lecture hall really, really easily. But then simulating what happens in that kind of joint, interactive, engaged, back-and-forth process in a small class Mm -hmm. is actually much, much more difficult. The kids check out. They can't turn their cameras off. We we can't all be synchronously in the same space or the same virtual space at the same time. Right. Uh, There's a lot missing when you try and simulate that other kind of interaction. Dr. Rob Danish is on the line from the University of Waterloo, where he is a professor in the Department of Communication Arts. And he's written a very interesting, if somewhat provocative piece at theconversation.com, the title of which is The Problem with Online Learning. It doesn't teach people to think. And Dr. Danish, before the break, Rob was talking to us about uh, the uh, the differences in types of learning. And uh, essentially, that one type of learning uh, uh, is more effective uh, in an online environment than the other. And just uh, for those who have just woken up, Rob, and joining us for the first few moments here, uh, if you could just take a second and define those two types of learning quickly, we'll move on. Sure, yeah. So one type is about knowledge dissemination. So it's a professor giving a lecture on a theoretical body of knowledge and passing that on to the student. The other type is much more about know-how. So it's about problem solving and engagement with issues in the world. So you learn how to think through a problem, how to speak about it, how to write about it, uh, how to solve it, hopefully, in the long run. So those are the differences between kind of what I call knowing that knowledge, abstract knowledge, and knowing how knowledge, so how to do things in the world. And you quote uh, a, a philosopher named John Dewey who wrote a book called yeah. How We Think uh, in your piece yeah. extensively because um, he was a favor, uh, rather a, a fan of the, the, the knowing how habits. The, he was a fan yeah. of, of, of education methods that provoke thought more than anything else. Yeah. And your, your, your point in this piece, this excellent piece, is that one of those two forms of learning is better suited for online than the other. So if it's yeah. the it, it, if it's the abstract stuff that's easier to do online, then how how do would, there's the challenge then, isn't it? How to get the other yeah. half of the learning process into an online environment? I would imagine the experimentation is rampant. How's it going yeah. though? Uh, yeah. So it's, there's wins and losses. There's ups and downs. Um, I oversee a, a large first-year seminar program at my university. We have about 100 sections of courses with 25 students, and it's supposed to be this kind of student-centered learning where they're learning to write, they're learning to speak, they're learning to evaluate evidence, 
all these kinds of practical know-how skills. Okay. So we've devised a series of different ways of trying to facilitate engagement. Uh, so we're not using kind of traditional video lectures or podcast lectures. Uh, we're trying mm. our, our hand at some synchronous kind of online activity-based learning. Uh, but that has its successes and its failures. I think one part of the problem is that students are very easily check out of those mm-hmm. activities. They can turn their, their video camera off. They can right. just listen passively and do something else uh, while the, stu- the teacher is trying to engage them. And, and it's, that's, you can't do that in class. Like it's not going to work the same in class. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of disengagement from students, even as we try to ramp up or invent new ways of engaging them. And, and yet, you know, one of the uh, certainly one of the defensive positions the universities have taken is that, yes, of course, we realize that it's it's not the same. But what we're trying very hard to do is create a circumstance in which students have individual one on one or small groups on one with their lecturers yeah. or instructors. Uh, and, and, you know, you're not going to get the, the same uh, uh, interactive uh, capabilities, but they're trying in some way to do that. I don't know how successfully I'm hearing different things from anecdotally, Rob, just from different students that I'm, uh, I know yeah. who are in post-secondary school, some very dissatisfied, some kind of yeah. managing. That's as good as it gets in terms of the people I know in school right now. Yeah, I think that the thing we've had the most success with is actually what you're pointing to, like these one-on-one. So many of our instructors will just take a whole week off of the semester and meet each student one-on-one for an individual session. Uh, And the students do seem to like that. They feel like their professor now hears them. They can ask questions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it's also an enormous time commitment from the the teacher. Like it's, you lose a week of the class itself. So, you know, there are trade-offs there also. Um, And so even that hasn't been ideally, an ideal circumstance or perfectly implemented. Interesting. Also, Rob, you talk in your piece about, uh, and it's even, a, you dedicate a whole portion of it, drowning in specialized knowledge. Are we yeah, over-teaching yeah. some areas, simply just over-teaching? Um, uh, maybe. But, like, I mean, the university was so good for so long at making new knowledge that we've just got an abundance of it. And I think we also have an abundance of media for consuming it now because of YouTube videos and podcasts sure. and all these things. Um, and if you're, I'm a student and I want to get access to a body of knowledge, let's say I like mushrooms and I want to be a mycologist. Well, you know, I can get that knowledge at university. I can also just go online and find yes. all sorts of knowledge about that there. Um, so we've, we've produced so much of it that it's readily available and abundant, but it's a mistake to just assume someone's educated just because they now possess that body of knowledge or some obscure body of knowledge. Like it, education is so much more than, than that. It's not the mm-hmm. thing that I give you. It's like, like a package of knowledge that I hand off to you. If doing education right, it's this kind of like transformative encounter with the world that changes how you think. And that's what we're not drowning. We're not drowning in opportunities that are the kind of transformative encounters. We're drowning in like the media of disseminating knowledge. Right. And so how do we take that? How do we move uh, out of that morass of a a, a superabundance of information at our fingertips 24-7? 
so we know we can find out anything we need to find out. Thank God for Google, we say many yeah, times yeah, a day, exactly. every day. Yeah. So, but yep. that's fine. So we know all of that, Rob, but you're right. There's no thinking involved. The thinking is, oh, how do I, what do I type in to get that answer from Google? That's all, the, that's the thinking involved. So how do you take all of that, uh, uh, people with all of that knowledge at their fingertips, half uh, half of their education right there, all of the, the knowledge. But the other yeah. half, as you point out so eloquently, is what to do, learning what to do with that knowledge, how to take that yeah. in a practical way and spend the rest of your life enjoying the knowledge and finding ways yeah. to learn even more. So we know how to do this, actually. Uh, you mentioned Dewey a couple of minutes ago. So John Dewey is the father of what's called student-centered pedagogy. Um, but student-centered pedagogy is more than just making sure students are heard in the classroom. It's about setting up a classroom where problems take center stage. So you put a problem in front of a student or a front, in front of a class, and the, the class is to think through how to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And the teacher is a kind of guide and a kind of model for how you might solve that particular problem. So, and, and this goes for lots of different things, like how, to, how do I make a better solar panel? a cheaper, more efficient solar panel so I can use solar energy? Uh, Mm -hmm. What's the impact of structural racism on um, sociological factors or health or something like that? So these are all problems. Um, The problem-centered education is a little slower. It's a little messier. Um, The the students will fumble around, get some things wrong, make some mistakes. And that fumbling messiness is the thing that I don't think we have so much time for anymore. And it's very hard to capture in a remote setting. How then, uh, I, I appreciate that, and there, there's the challenge for the educator in, yeah. in this mix, of course, but how, in your discussions with your peers about how to get beyond this and how to get to that point where in some way you can uh, activate the thinking process remotely through this online yeah. environment that we're currently in, uh, what, what, are, what are your peers telling you, Rob? What's working and, and what isn't? What do they know? No, that's, you don't even need to go there. That's yeah. dumb. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that is working, I mean, maybe this is ironic, maybe it's not, but one of the things that is working is when there is synchronous online activity and synchronous means that everybody's logged on at the same time. Okay. Sure. Um, so asynchronous learning is when you can just log on watch a video anytime you want mm-hmm. that week and, and everybody's on a different time. So when there's synchronous activity, when people have their cameras on um, and when the instructor is facilitating an interaction where the, the students feel they are connecting to one another right. and not just the teacher. So when we're online, one thing we, if it's asynchronous, if we just log on, consume a video and then log off, I don't even meet the other students in my class. I don't know their names. I don't interact with them. I don't know what questions mm-hmm. they have. So that's a problem. Um, so if we have this kind of synchronous simulated classroom discussion where the students start interacting with each other and the professor can kind of take a step back and guide the interaction, that can work. Um, but ironically, it looks exactly like a classroom, a traditional classroom, only with a screen mediating our presence. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we didn't reinvent the wheel. We just used, you know, Zoom or Skype or something like that to recreate a classroom. Interesting stuff. Are you hopeful that this whole thing may be moot 
by this fall, Rob, that, that no. uh, as, as, as is the case here in British Columbia, certainly with K-12, to and I would assume post-secondary automatically falls in, uh, the decision has been made already that barring really bizarre, unforeseen circumstances, BC kids will go back to school this fall. So uh, is it oh, likely have... if, 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 if Ontario makes the same call, this could be, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say moot, because it's never going to go away again, is it? Yeah. I'm not as hopeful as you are, maybe. Um, I think for younger kids, for high school age kids, for middle, middle school age kids, they're likely to go back to something more normal. And, and that's a good thing. And I think that will happen here in Ontario also. Right. I'm much more skeptical at the level of uh, higher education, university level. So okay. where we are, um, it's not clear that we're just going to go back to teaching on campus. What's clear is that a lot of courses are still going to be remote in the fall. Ah. And that's what's worrying me. That's why I wrote this piece. Like, I wish I could say, no, Ontario University post-secondary se- sector is committed to going back to on-campus learning. I don't see that. And mm. I see actually a, an interest in continuing the online remote learning and, and that we've developed and making it a central feature of, uh, gra- of, of undergrad degrees going forward. And that worries me. Like, yeah. I don't know how much of a feature, like what that means, et cetera. And I'm not sure. And, and of course, it's not universal here in BC either. I know Royal Roads University in Victoria, for example, yeah. is going to main, maintain its uh, its uh, uh, distance learning program. So yes, it's much more of a post secondary challenge by the looks of things than it will be for secondary and elementary school. Doctor Rob yeah. Danish, thank you so much for doing this with us this morning. It's a very interesting piece. It it does provoke thinking. It's early in the morning <laughs> here on the West Coast, but I think we got a few wheels turning. I can smell the smoke. <laughs> thank you so thank, much, Sterling. I appreciate. Thanks for joining us, Rob. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Uh, the the uh, the piece, by the way, friends, is worth a quick read. It's called "The Problem with Online Learning." It doesn't teach people to think. The author is Dr. Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo. It's at theconversation.com. It's a historic day for the neighbors to the south. It is June 19th, and for the first time in the history of the United States, it is a federal holiday. On Thursday, President Biden said that signing legislation into law establishing June 19th as Juneteenth National Independence Day which is now a U.S. federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. President Biden said this act will go down as, quote, one of the greatest honors of his presidency. Meanwhile, the neighbors to the north, uh, millions of us sitting around scratching our heads this weekend going, what exactly is Juneteenth all about? So we thought here on the morning show on CKNW, we would take a few moments and try to unravel this and explain it all and uh, just establish perhaps a greater understanding of the historical nature of this day in the United States. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. June Francis to the program this morning. June is an associate professor in the Beattie School of Marketing at Simon Fraser University and holds a whole lot of other credentials as well, which if we have time later, we'll rattle through. Dr. Francis, June, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you? Hope everyone is doing well. well. 
I'm doing very well. It's nice to have you with us. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In fact, uh, this this business of Juneteenth, it's uh, it's uh, Canadians are we're not baffled by it, June, but we're just it's not our holiday. So could you take a few moments and just unpack this, uh, why it is and why particularly Juneteenth is is such a big day. It's only celebrated in a very few states or has been up until this point, and suddenly it's a national holiday. Unravel it for us a little, if you would, please. I will. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I first want to say that although it's not a Canadian holiday, uh, I think uh, people from the Black diaspora or for descendants of slaves worldwide uh, celebrate across the world. Um, every time we, 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 we grapple with this holiday, and of course it's different dates in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, just to put it in context, um, in Canada as part of the, the British Dominion, slavery was abolished. Um, the, the, uh, slavery itself, the, so the slave trade was abolished in 1807, but slavery itself was abolished on August 1st, 1834. So just okay. think about this 1834 date. Now, in the United States, as you know, uh, slavery, a civil war was fought over the South wishing to continue slavery. Correct. So we have this civil war raging um, in the United States. And, and on January 1st, 1863, before the official end uh, of the Civil War, um, Lincoln uh, declares or proclaims emancipation on January 1st, 1863. So right. almost 30 years later. But what happens is the, the South did not accept this. Uh, the Civil War is still going on. The South has not um, uh, 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 given in. And so the South continues uh, the, the institution of slavery. Right. And the Unionist soldiers, finally, I mean, those days, no cars, right? Mm-hmm. No trains. So they're getting, it's mainly horse, right? So the, the co- they're coming in and they're emancipating different states. Now, some states that in the North had actually uh, gone along with this, but of course in the South. And so finally they reached the Galveston, Texas. Now, that, if, if you know the geography, of course, it's very isolated. And these uh, slaves have no idea that they have been freed. And so they, 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 they arrived and they finally, on June 19th, 1865, two and a half years, after the Emancipation Proclamation, these final set of slaves recognize that they're free and they're finally freed on June 19th. And that's why it has become the official end in practice of slavery in the United States. Ah, and so Galveston, Texas. Right, Galveston, Texas being way, way down in the deep south of Texas, right on the Gulf, uh, as far exactly. away from Washington as you can possibly get. So it took two and a half years from the, the date, or, uh, the timing of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation for the last pocket of slaves to understand what the implications of the Emancipation Proclamation were. So two and a half years after it was delivered, slaves in Galveston, Texas, finally learned about it and got to got to walk away, so to speak. So to speak, because as you know, the history didn't go quite so smoothly. 
of because course. the South retaliated with the Jim Crow and all the years later. But that was the moment that they were no longer considered property. Exactly. And now uh, the uh, this has been, uh, uh, again, it's been a, a, a contentious issue for quite some time. I mentioned at the outset that up until this weekend, uh, the actual Juneteenth had only been celebrated in a relatively small amount of states. Uh, and so now it's a national holiday. There's still resistance to this, isn't there? Absolutely. Because of the denial, the United States of America built on slavery um, got its wealth from slavery, and most of us have never heard that acknowledged. And so, especially in the Deep South, but not just in the South, there's been a backlash against any notion of recognizing, apologizing, and um, making transparent the deep history. This is a country that lost almost a, over a million people. Think about that. Yeah. One million people to defend the right to keep people enslaved. Lost mm. their sons and daughters. Think about that. A lot of sons in the, at that time. Killed. Were willing to send them to fight to defend the institution of slavery. So right. we have a deeply troubled uh, past here. One where violence was used to enforce this. And so people continue to want to um, re- reject that, uh, the transparency. As you see, uh, they're, they're still rejecting even teaching um, American citizens about the history of slavery. Uh, so, yes, there's been a content. And so Biden's move is, in fact, historic. Um, right. There's no doubt about it. Should have been done a long time ago. But I think this is a, it represents an in- important turning point because it makes it official. It makes it transparent. It brings to the fore, and it will start, I think, a process, I hope, of reparations and healing in that country. Indeed. Let me, let me quote uh, President Biden from Thursday's signing ceremony, June, if I may. Here's the quote. I regret that my grandchildren aren't here because this is a really, really important moment in our history. By making Juneteenth a federal holiday, all Americans can feel the power of this day and learn from our history and celebrate progress and grapple with the distance we've come and the distance we yet have to travel. Close quote. Interesting stuff. Biden took this very seriously. He said it'd be, uh, when he looks back, whether he does one or two terms, it's going to go down as one of the greatest honors uh, of his presidency. And he's really early into the job. So, you know, this is, is meaningful to him. Absolutely. And I have been impressed with that, I I must say. Um, And I'm also going to uh, call out our own prime minister, who earlier this year um, announced that August 1st would be recognized as 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 an emancipation day in this country. Mm -hmm. That had not previously been done. No, it's not a holiday yet. I think we need to move in that direction because I think that it's another way to ensure this denial of slavery in Canada can be, again, like the United States, brought to the fore. Now, we didn't fight a civil war over it, but we did. White Canadians have benefited from slavery. And I think that we, too... um, could go a long way by moving from the proclamation. But I do say uh, that that very act of, of proclaiming August 1st as Emancipation Day is important in this country as well. 
Today is Juneteenth, National Independence Day. It's a U.S. federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery. Actually, since it became uh, a, a law and happened to be on a Saturday, uh, federal employees, many of them, celebrated Juneteenth on Friday. Here to uh, talk about this phenomenon is Dr. June Francis from Simon Fraser University. And Dr. Francis, in addition to talking about uh, Juneteenth 2021 as an historic day in the evolution of the United States, you're interested in the government of Canada going back to August 1st, 1834, to recognize that as a, a moment in Canadian history. Would you remind us, people are getting up, June, uh, and joining us uh, every second. So can you just walk us through uh, August 1st, 1834, again, remind us of what happened on that date, and then why you sh think it should be, it, it, have its status elevated. Thank you so much for this opportunity. So again, uh, as we talked earlier today, there is jubilation across the, the United States um, as, as they continue from yesterday to celebrate, which today is the day, uh, Juneteenth. And in Canada earlier this year, um, as we remember, this uh, Juneteenth was in 1965, 1865. Right, yes, But for Texas. Canada, the end of slavery came as part of the British Dominion, uh, all uh, territories it, were emancipated um, on, officially as the Act of Parliament took effect on August 1st, 1834, across much of the British uh, Commonwealth, by the way. Mm -hmm, and yes. in Canada, uh, earlier this year, so that's the day when enslaved people in Canada became free. There were a couple of attempts, I must say, before that, but it, none of them prevailed. So it wasn't until 1834, in fact, that uh, the institution of slavery ended in Canada. And so on that day, August 1st, um, we, of course, in the Black diaspora and the Black community have always been celebrating this day. And for the rest of the, for the U.S. fought the Civil War. For the rest of the Commonwealth, we celebrate uh, it in a different way, because mm. in fact, it was much of the, the rebellion of the slaves themselves across the Caribbean, for example, that brought the institution to its knees. So in, in Jamaica, we think about the I'm Jamaican by birth. We, mm -hmm. we celebrate this, this, um, uh, the slave rebellions that, that, that were influential in this. So in Canada... Um, on all, just like everywhere else, it was um, abolished uh, on that day. Uh, Canada, as you know, w uh, was part of the institution of slavery. We know that, for example, uh, we have examples now, McGill, the great McGill owned slaves. We know that there was segregation in this country. We know that people were enslaved. And we also know that we participated directly and indirectly in the profits of slavery. So, so we know that this is a country that has had slaves and after slavery enacted a number of policies to exclude uh, black people, for example, uh, from coming to Canada uh, through um, acts of uh, pol uh, immigration policy. Mm -hmm. so, so, so we have our own deep history um, in, in, to, to talk about. And August 1st um, is important in this country because it does two things. It allows us 
to acknowledge and accept that, yes, Canada was a part of the slave institution of slavery, benefited from the institution of slavery, and had social economic consequences that continues to this day in the exclusion and the racism felt, what we anti-black racism uh, felt by people of African descent. And so, if you you know, like anything else, if you want to heal from something and you want to transform something. I believe acknowledgement starts the process. Just be honest and truthful. Embed it as a transparent holiday. And, and I think the two original sins have to be dealt with. I believe there should be a, a day for Indigenous people. Uh, that's a national holiday. I think it should, we should replace Queen Victoria. This might appall some people. But I do think uh, we need to come to grips with Indigenous people's um, a, a day to celebrate and to, to their um, uh, their contributions mm-hmm. uh, to ca- Canada, and I do think we also need to acknowledge the second original sin, which was slavery, uh, through making this now proclaimed day also a national holiday. June, I'm almost out of time. Literally, I've got about 30 seconds here. You talked about the government of Canada leaning in this direction. Do you see it actually happening, or is this more virtue signaling? I think at this point it still looks like virtue signaling, but I think if we get support from across Canada, and this is where this becomes important, that we all support this. But I think that if we want the Canada we, 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 we want, we want a Canada that's inclusive, I think we all should get behind this. And in that case, I think it is possible that this may become our national holiday as well. August 1st. Dr. Dr. June Francis, thanks very much for getting up early and when you didn't have to on a Saturday morning to do this with us. It's a very important day for the next door neighbors, and we appreciate the time you've taken to help us uh, sort it all out and understand it better. Thanks very much, June. Thank you. Dr. June Francis from the Beattie School of Marketing at Simon Fraser University. Well, let's talk dragon boats. This is a great story to have. Dominic Lai is joining us now. Mr. Lai is the Marketing and Operations Director with Dragon Boat BC. Dominic, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing just great. You have some good news for fans of dragon boats around the Lower Mainland and across the province, and you have many, many thousands of them, uh, Dominic. So tell us what's going on today. Yeah, for sure. So, well, I mean, as we all know, uh, BC's restart plan is just uh, happening across different sectors right now. And uh, we've been working on our restart for a very long time. But today is actually the day when we're actually able to return our dragon boats to the water. And so at some point in about half an hour, when our staff get here to our docks, we're all going to be heading out to our compound, loading the boats into our trailers and then driving them straight down to the water in anticipation for practices, hopefully beginning as early as next week. Aha. Uh-huh. So where's, where, where does everything get stored? It's been stored now for well over a year. Uh, at where, where is your facility, Dominic? Well, so our primary facility is right on False Creek, right beside Science World in Olympic Village. And right, um, yeah. because of COVID, we've had to pull out all of our boats to yes. our primary storage compound, which is right beside BC Place. But also some of our boats have been going through some much needed uh, TLC just so that we can um, just so that we can take the time to, you know, fix up some of the things that needed to be fixed. Uh, so we've been working on that with some of our teams out at uh, Saperton. And, you know, that's another great story, too, just because we were able to get some funding to um, from the, the government to help employ people that were 
going through a little bit of a tough situation because of COVID and also gives them some uh, future job skills as well. Interesting. So I live in Sapperton. Where Where is the facility there and, and what and how long has that been going? Um, so that's been going on since last fall, I believe. And okay. uh, it's right at the old BC Penitentiary. Uh, in the oh, right, building. Sure. Yeah, right on the waterfront. But okay. yeah, so today, you know, our boats are returning and, um, you know, next week our practice is going to be starting. It's not going to be full dragon boats right away yet. You know, we're taking it one day at a time. We're being cautious just because uh, it's better to be cautious and sorry later on. But, um, but you know, it's step one towards in, towards returning to normal. Well, no kidding. And a big, big day for everyone at Dragon Boat BC just to get a boat back in the water officially. That's huge, isn't it, Dominic? It's been over a year. Yeah, I think the last time these boats were actually in the water would have been about mid-March 2020, when I think many of us were thinking that, you know, within a week or two, we'd be coming back to normal and hopefully things were going to be okay. But um, here we are about a year and a quarter later and uh, starting to just come back to normal. But we're optimistic. Uh, We're hoping that later on in the year, depending on how the COVID trajectory goes, we'll start seeing more teams come in. We're looking at running a uh, smaller festival, um, a smaller race festival at the end of September. Okay. And uh, running cultural programs as well. So, you know, just to keep the spirit of Dragon Boat going, because today actually would have been the uh, Dragon Boat Festival. We would have actually all been on False Creek with about Mm 6,000 racers and all of our spectators. Um, starting right now for the first race actually that's right and, and we we ought, we can all recall so so many of those colorful dragon boat festival weekends here in vancouver just fabulous fun and so much energy so many so many people involved i mean spectating uh, and, and let alone participating and on the participating side of things dominic you mentioned that practicing will resume next weekend who's going to be doing the practicing what teams So, so far, we've had some preliminary expressions of interest from some of our teams. Not everyone's quite ready to return to the water yet, but those that are, you know, have taken precautions. um, We're going with fewer people per boat. Um, But, you know, even now, even without the dragon boats on the water, we've had a lot of people come back to our facility just to paddle um, because we run a kayak rental operation and also a um, kayak pass system out of our docks here. And also we've seen a whole bunch of our paddlers visit our exhibit at BC Sports Hall of Fame, uh, where we've actually been sharing the cultural side of Dragon Boat, where we've been sharing the individual stories of Dragon Boat a little bit more. Um, You know, with the sport, it's really easy to constantly be thinking about training sessions and medals and times. And people forget that Dragon Boat is actually an ancient Chinese sport that was brought to Vancouver at Expo. And also beyond that has all these wonderful stories that talk about individual narratives and individual experiences and why they choose to paddle. Indeed. And you've got this exhibit called Paddles Up, the Canadian International Dragon Boat Festival exhibit. It's out open at the BC Sports Hall of Fame at BC Place Stadium. And uh, that is something that uh, you're encouraging people to to, uh, to check out as well. But uh, as far as the festival, the good news is that it's unlike last year. We're not going to miss it completely. It's just been delayed until September when uh, it's even more likely, Dominic, that uh, we'll be in a much better position public health wise to really have the kind of fun that we should be when the dragon boat festival rolls out so just postponed a few months for 2021 right 
Exactly. That's the that's idea that we're going with. And, you know, even we know that even when we go back to uh, September and 2021, people aren't necessarily going to be comfortable with everyone together in a yeah. big space yet. And so what we've done is we've actually preemptively planned a whole range of cultural programming that goes over a week and a half at different sites around the city. Some of it's going to be virtual. Some of it's going to be in person. Some of it's going to be exhibition based. And again, what we want to do is we want to share the stories of Dragon Boat and of the community, because that's what Dragon Boat was brought to Vancouver originally to do, to try and build intercultural connections. And so we hope that people actually take advantage of this time to, you know, enjoy the sport and enjoy everything that Vancouver is through the Dragon Boat Festival. Absolutely. Well, great news. Thank you for taking a few moments out of your busy Saturday morning, Dominic, to uh, to join us and remind us that the Dragon Boat Festival is indeed very much a part of our life again this year. Delayed a little bit, but boats in the water this morning. Congratulations and thanks once again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. There's Dominic Lai, the Marketing and Operations Director with Dragon Boat BC. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.